Isaiah Cannon owned and edited the Near East Report, a professional lobbying bulletin published in Washington, D.C. beginning in 1957. Between June 1957 and May 1959, Cannon churned out 48 issues. The positioning and mandate of the newsletter appeared in a print issue shortly after it commenced publication. Tellingly, Kennan's public relations framework was now so highly developed and subtle that it made no mention at all of its core concern, the State of Israel. It read, In the last decade, the Near East Report has attained international significance in contemporary history. Always a center of religion, culture, and philosophy, the Near East is now a primary concern of our Cold War world. Events shaping the destiny of this crucial region are playing a decisive part in the arena of world politics and propaganda in both a new mouthpiece to rewrite the past and a deadly weapon to determine the future. Two years ago, the Near East Report was established as a Washington newsletter reporting and interpreting American foreign policy in the Near East. Our purpose, then and now, to sift out the propaganda and clarify the facts. Our policy? To provide a lucid analysis of developments as they occur. Our aim? To contribute to a positive, constructive policy which will enlarge and strengthen the circle of American friendship in the Near East. The Near East Report was absolutely vital to Cannon's lobbying efforts, counting votes and spurring U.S. military sales, and aid to Israel. As in his abortive attempt at writing a book, Kennan kept a tight binary tally of what he characterized as anti-Israel votes in Congress and the UN. His expanded serialized criticism of members of Congress who attempted to craft a more broadly representative Middle East policy was phrased in a lofty and disembodied third-person plural voice. The prose was geared to instill a sense of an observant, omnipotent, and unified Israel lobby. Kennan also threw out hunks of red meat to drum up opposition, phone calls, letters, and impassioned responses in key congressional districts. Early on, Kennan went after Senator J.W. Fulbright, printing articles bearing lofty titles such as, We Differ with Fulbright, to chastise the senator for reaching out to Arab countries. Kennan also reprinted letters from activists and allies that appeared in leading regional and national newspapers. The Near East Report also published many timely and detailed media monitoring reports from the Arab press and radio broadcasts, which appeared in the comments section. Kennan seemed to be instantly privy to expansive in-region foreign press monitoring, though no information about sources and collection methods ever appeared in the Near East Report. Somewhat ironically, an early mainstay section of the Near East Report was the Propaganda Pressure Corner, which called out and rebuked individuals and entities Kennan considered enemies of Israel. The Near East Report constantly spun down the impact of the American Council for Judaism whenever Kennan felt it had attracted undue attention. A discordant note was sounded by the American Council for Judaism a fringe organization created in 1943 by the dwindling hardcore of anti-Zionists opposed to the creation of Israel because they were against the concept of a Jewish state. Despite the fact that it represents only a tiny fraction of American Jewry, the council does not hesitate to appear at political conventions in an effort to juxtapose itself with a majority in the minds of the American people, thundered the Near East report. 
Analysis and excerpted statements from Senator J.W. Fulbright appeared under such blaring headlines as, Fulbright attacks! Kennan must have seen Fulbright as attempting to expose and pull up the tender roots of his growing Israel public relations network in the U.S. In mid-May of 1960, Fulbright conducted a sweeping five-day tour of the Middle East. In his June edition of the Near East Report, Kennan printed an excerpt of Fulbright's pre-trip announcement in which the senator seemed to strike back at the very heart of the Israel lobby's U.S. public relations campaign. Fulbright said, I have a feeling that we don't appreciate the Arab point of view. I think our press generally presents it in a way that makes it appear that he's just being arbitrary. In the early 1960s, the Near East Report began to dabble in cartoons and more sophisticated graphics, which generally portrayed Arabs as heavily armed, violent, and incapable of crossing the bridge of modernity. The cartoons became more vicious and stereotypical as time went by. One inalterable position of the Near East Report was that there should be no right of return or reparations payments for Palestinian refugees expelled during the formation of the state. Kennan would often highlight and diametrically oppose Fulbright's argument that the Palestinian refugee issue is at the heart of Arab-Israeli hostility. While in Israel, Senator Fulbright said that the refugee problem was at the root of Arab-Israel hostility. Even though he conceded that the constructive solution was resettlement in underdeveloped areas of the Arab countries, he believed that Israel should accept more than a symbolic number. Ben-Gurion wants a refugee issue considered in Arab-Israel peace talks. Kennan's own voice on the refugee issue, disembodied and expressed in an omniscient third-person plural, we, countered such analysis. His counterpoints and talking points on Palestinian refugees emphasized the Israeli position as being the only sensible and clearly mainstream choice for Americans. There is growing recognition of the fact that the Arab refugee problem is not the cause of the Arab-Israel war. It is a result of that war and cannot be solved unless and until the war is abandoned. Fulbright often seemed to be the sole congressional opponent to the new phenomenon of Israel-centric legislative restrictions attached to regional aid programs and unrelated bills. He publicly criticized this tactic of the Israel lobby. Much later, Fulbright gradually won over even President John F. Kennedy, an extremely dangerous development for the lobby. The unmovable position probably infuriated Kennan, who printed many Fulbright quotes like the following in the Near East Report to mobilize his base. I cannot help but believe that a marked improvement in our relations with the Middle East would result from some changes in attitude, a greater recognition of the dignity of newly independent nations, and a small dose of humility would be deeply appreciated by most new nations. I'm sure the peoples of the Middle East would appreciate less preoccupation on our part with assertions of our own righteousness and fewer self-judging conditions tied to our aid. The Near East Report attempted to lionize and reward faithful supporters whenever it could. Senator Javits' pithy quotes were sprinkled liberally across many editions. In a section called, File for the Record, Kennan profiled then-up-and-coming Senator John F. Kennedy's correct views about the need for Arab acquiescence to Israel and its demands on the Palestinian refugee issue. 
Then-Senator Kennedy called for a new approach in the Middle East in a speech to the Senate on June 14, 1960. We must formulate, with both imagination and restraint, a new approach to the Middle East, not pressing our case so hard that the Arabs feel their neutrality and nationalism are threatened, but accepting these forces and seeking to help channel them along constructive lines, while at the same time trying to hasten the inevitable Arab acceptance of the permanence of Israel. McCannon was not simply a distant and bombastic Washington political observer promoting Israel and chastising politicians from behind the drapery of a newsletter. Following Theodore Herzl's mandate to get behind our banner and fight for our cause with voice and pen and deed, Kennan also helped draft planks for both major political parties. Kennan traveled to Los Angeles on July 15, 1960, to participate in the formulation of the Near East Plank at the Democratic Convention, which he then reprinted in full in the Near East Report. In the Middle East, we will work for guarantees to ensure independence for all states. We will encourage direct Arab-Israel peace negotiations, the resettlement of Arab refugees and land where there's room and opportunity for them, an end to boycotts and blockades, the unrestricted use of the Suez Canal by all nations. We urge continued economic assistance to Israel and the Arab peoples to help them raise their living standards. We pledge our best efforts for peace in the Middle East by seeking to prevent an arms race while guarding against the dangers of a military imbalance resulting from Soviet arms shipments. For Kennan, the propaganda value of highlighting his personal involvement in both Democratic and Republican Party politics was irresistible. He momentarily broke from his usual background role, dictated by his tight public relations standards. Kennan provided rare meta-level analysis of the national and international impact of his participation in the Planck formulation to Near East Report readers. The Importance of Platforms Many people are skeptical about political platforms, but skepticism is unjustified. Platform declarations have a positive value in the clarification and implementation of our national policies. They help mold public opinion at home because they inform and guide candidates who stand for election on their party's program. They have importance abroad because they transmit to other governments the views of the American people. Sometimes, our foreign policy is expressed more forcibly and plainly in a platform than when masked in the language of diplomacy. In this way, the Near East Report also served as a paper-based lobbying mini-seminar to educate and energize donors and activists in each congressional district. Kennan's teaching would multiply as the lobby later began grooming candidates executing opposition research and smear campaigns, and establishing an archipelago of coordinated self-political action committees to tip key races. The critical early role of Israeli money in Kennan's publishing venture never made it into the Near East Report's masthead. As Kennan turned out the newsletter, Kremlinologists and U.S. intelligence agencies were trying to interpret the complex inner workings of Soviet power politics during the Cold War by reading between the lines. They observed body language and the location of various leaders at Soviet events in Red Square, filling in troublesome gaps in hard human and electronic intelligence. 
Kennan's strange February 1, 1961 Near East Report article about the Levon affair is a contorted masterpiece of misdirection and obfuscation. It is close to being unintelligible without insider information. His article attempted to tell his readership how to react to what outsiders would have seen as merely a, a distant internal power struggle in the Israeli government. The clash between Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion and Pinas Lavon, Secretary General of the Histradut, Israel's powerful trade union federation, whipped up Israel's gravest political crisis and culminated in Mr. Ben-Gurion's resignation on January 31. The conflict came to a climax after a security mishap. The Israel government has never disclosed the precise nature of the incident, which forced Mr. Levon to retire under a cloud in February 1955. At that time, and ever since, Mr. Levon denied responsibility for the affair, but in the ensuing inquiry, his subordinates in the Defense Department claimed that the operation was in accord with his instructions. Censorship, however, creates vacuums which are swiftly filled and contaminated by propaganda. Egyptian propagandists identified the 1954 mishap as the 1955 Gaza raid. In 1955, the Israeli army attacked Egyptian military installations at Gaza in reprisal for the Fedayeen raids. Egyptians always claimed that Nasser was forced to ask the Soviet bloc for arms because of their defeat at Gaza. And so they circulated press reports that the Levant affair was responsible for Nasser's attachment to Moscow. But this propaganda is confounded by the calendar. The Gaza raid took place on February 28, long after the Levon resignation. But the 1954 incident itself is of little significance today. The Levon affair of 1954 is so far overshadowed by the Levon affair of 1960. What is important is that Israel's democratic system is now facing its most critical challenge. What was Kennan tiptoeing around with such care? A scandal that very indirectly tied the Jewish agency executive to an Israeli terrorist attack on the United States. In the summer of 1954, Israel conducted a covert false flag operation in Egypt, codenamed Operation Susanna. Israeli agents launched terrorist bombing attacks against U.S., British, and Egyptian-owned targets in Egypt. U.S. information service libraries in Alexandria and Cairo were targeted. Since 1950, it had been U.S. policy to pressure the British to withdraw from the Suez Canal and abandon two treaties. The Anglo-Egyptian Treaty of 1936, which made the canal a neutral zone under British control, and the Convention of Constantinople. Israel feared that a British withdrawal would remove an important check on Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser's military ambitions. After Israel's diplomatic efforts failed to convince the British to stay, Israel unleashed the false flag terrorist operation designed to convince the British that it was way too dangerous to leave while framing the Egyptians. Israel recruited and the IDF trained a group of young Egyptian-born Jews to carry out the terror attacks in Cairo and Alexandria. Well, exactly who ordered the operation and other details remain to this day a closely guarded secret in Israel. It is known that members of the terror cell were apprehended by Egypt in 1954. In December of the same year, they were put on trial. Operatives Max Benet and Yosef Karman avoided revealing operational details by committing suicide. Kennan wrote about the scandal caused by the arrest of the group using its Israeli reference, Esek Bish, the mishap. 
The scant reporting on the mishap that appeared in the Western press referred to it as the Levon Affair, after Defense Minister Levon. Levon strenuously denied that he had ordered the terror operation. As Kennan noted, Levon was forced to resign his post over the matter in January 1955. The incident caused a break between Ben-Gurion and Levi Eshkol. 1895 to 1969, in 1961 over Ben-Gurion's insistence on fully investigating and learning lessons from the sordid incident. Up-and-coming political rival Levi Eshkol was insistent that investigating the affair was a waste of time, and he wished to bury it as soon as possible. On December 13, 1964, he addressed the issue before the Mapai Central Committee. If I vote in favor of an inquiry into the Levon affair, we would be opening a Pandora's box of trouble. It will not end with this affair or with this investigation. We'll be spending the next 15 years dealing with investigations into various unsolved matters, he testified. The matter was of more than passing historical interest to Kennan. Before becoming Prime Minister of Israel in June of 1963 and engineering the Levon cover-up, Eshkol sat on the board of the Jewish Agency. Eshkol and other Israelis approved the dispersal of millions in funding from that agency, some laundered through the American Zionist Council, secretly subsidized Kennan's public relations efforts, lobbying, and publication of the Near East Report. Eshkol clearly felt that Jabotinsky and the Operation Susanna terrorists were quintessential Israeli heroes. This view was later quietly supported by the Israeli military. The surviving members of the terror cell received acknowledgement and military honors in Israel in 2005, as noted by the Jerusalem Post. Marcel Nanio, Robert Dassa, and Mair Zafran were accorded military ranks Wednesday in recognition of their service to the state and their years of suffering. The three are the last surviving members of Operation Susanna, an Israeli spy and sabotage network. Kinnan, who delighted in publishing cartoons depicting Arabs as the region's only terrorist bomb throwers, could never portray his foreign principle in the same way when writing about the Levon Affair or Israel's creation. By November of 1961, he had downgraded the Levon Affair to merely an espionage debacle in the Near East Report. Another explosion! Shamir Ben-Gurion may resign in a new political upheaval, which has split the dominant Mapai party. He's protesting a cabinet decision which clears his political antagonist, Lavon, Secretary General of Histradut, of any responsibility for an espionage debacle in Egypt in 1954. The investigation showed that a senior military officer had falsely accused Lavon of ordering the operation, which led to Lavon's resignation of Minister of Defense. Kennan's and the Jewish agency's survival of the Levon affair required a degree of incuriosity from Congress. Senate investigators briefly compelled verbal testimony from Jewish agency executives that revealed Eshkol's key position on the Jewish agency board, which was directly funding Kennan's newsletter in the U.S. during 1963 testimony. But they did not, and probably could not, establish Eshkol's link to covering up the bombing of U.S. government property in Egypt for lack of relevant public and classified U.S. intelligence information. There were also no Kremlinologists capable of interpreting Kennan's or any other obtuse press accounts, circumlocutions surrounding the cover-up in the U.S. Copies of the Near East Report reached the desks of U.S. media, society, and political elites 
often accompanied by a heavy linen bond presentation card reading, with compliments of I.L. Kennan. In reality, the Israeli government-funded Jewish agency was partially footing the bill. Between June 29, 1960 and October 13, 1961, Kennan received $38,000, usually in $5,000 increments, from the Jewish agency laundered through the American Zionist Council to publish the Near East Report. The Jewish agency American Section in New York filed highly deceptive registration statements with FARA, first omitting the transfers, then disclosing only lump-sum disbursements to the American Zionist Council, which it called subventions for education. These purposefully vague, non-itemized disbursement declarations were in keeping with Ben-Gurion's intent to amplify the domestic role of the American Zionist Council. As a nonprofit corporation, it did not have to disclose the ultimate destination of funds transferred on to academics, lobbyists, and think tanks. These payments not only allowed Kennan to finance his own startup activities at APAC, but also paid for free Near East Report subscriptions for every member of Congress, large donors, editors, and allies in the private sector news and information services. Although the term money laundering was not used at the time, it is a highly accurate description of how this financial flow thwarted the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Fulbright's investigation created an unassailable public record of the fact that Kennan never formally severed ties to the Israeli government and related foreign principles as he had represented in his Foreign Agent Registration Act correspondence. Yet both Kennan and his supporters would continue to attempt to drown out facts surrounding the critical Jewish agency startup funding. They played up the supposedly cleansing and legitimizing effect of non-tax-deductible funds he later raised in the U.S. as an APAC lobbyist, never discussing his critical foreign subsidy. Kennan's defenders at the Fulbright hearings maintained that Shell Corporation transfers shielded him from foreign agent status. To Kennan, claiming autonomous non-tax-deductible domestic funding, as scarce as it was, was the whole key to stealth. He tried to make this clear to his colleagues, who did not understand why he was even bothering to present himself as somehow severed from the foreign payroll or anything but a foreign agent. He wrote... Many could not understand why the Israeli government could not subsidize this modest undertaking. They did not realize that foreign agents were limited in expression and activity. However, from a strictly cash flow standpoint, Kennan's early lobbying fundraising was a disaster that would not have survived if he had not tapped his Israeli subsidized cash flow to the Near East Report and even his own funds to meet budgetary gaps. Fortunately, once again, the crisis of war ever an economic opportunity, came to the rescue in 1967. We were always in the red, and I often had to wait a long time for my modest $13,000 a year salary. I frequently had to lend money to the committee, and I had to dispense with a capable assistant. The budget was not lifted until the Six-Day War. The United Jewish Appeal would collect more than $100 million in funds based on threats of imminent destruction from a mighty Soviet-backed Arab army poised to push Israel into the sea. The Israel in Crisis fundraising appeal became a mainstay theme after Israel's victory. 
Not until January 12, 2004, did the State Department's Office of the Historian declassify internal Johnson administration deliberations and diplomatic cables that debunked many myths about the Six-Day War. These revealed that the administration's own assessment that appeals for arms and aid were based on deliberately inflated Israeli intelligence estimates. Johnson's advisors quietly sought to restrain Israel long enough for a visit by the Egyptian diplomatic representative to wind down the confrontation. News of this shuttle diplomacy leaked to the Israelis, who promptly launched surprise attacks on June 5 of 1967. On June 4, 1967, Secretary Dean Rusk, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, National Security Council Special Representative Walt Rostow, and Ambassador Thompson began preparations for the visit of Egyptian Vice President Moedin and discussed ways to hold the Israeli tiger. The Secretary of State informed the Israeli ambassador of the visit. Kennan went to great lengths to publicly highlight a number of policy differences he allegedly had with the Israeli government as a badge of independence that APAC was a domestic entity lobbying for American interests. But in spite of the Six-Day War crisis and massive fundraising opportunity it generated, he was candid about his tight coordination with the Israeli embassy on key issues of arms and aid to Israel. The Israeli embassy, in turn, was more truthful to Kennan than to the U.S. president as it pumped the administration for arms. I was opposed to a major public relations campaign for arms because I had been led to believe by the embassy that it would not be necessary. Kennan's Near East report and the burgeoning ranks of allies in the U.S. press supplanted the need for the Israel Office of Information's policy-oriented propaganda bulletins. In turn, the Near East report served as an advocacy training program for others who went on to achieve high-profile mainstream mass media careers entirely independent of Israeli funding. Wolf Blitzer was an editor of the Near East Report in the mid-1970s. While at the newsletter, he followed Kennan's adversarial style with Fulbright and launched attacks on Capitol Hill opponents. Senator James Aberezek felt Blitzer was extremely one-sided. Blitzer has since moved on to serve as the anchor of CNN's Situation Room. The Near East Report was eventually transferred from Kennan's private ownership to an affiliated APAC nonprofit shell corporation called Near East Research, housed in the same building as APAC's Washington, D.C. headquarters. The Kennan legacy of harsh cartoons of Arabs as puppeteers, violent thugs, and subhuman stunted by inherent psychosis, continued after his departure. Although the newsletter's recent nonprofit annual reports claim that it is now funded through tax-deductible contributions, it is still not clear precisely how or when Jewish agency funding ceased. <laughs> 